Welcome to A Better Future for All in conversation with Kerry O'Brien, presented by Griffith University and Hodder, home of the arts on the Gold Coast. Bagel, young guy, Jimbalunks. G'day, friends. My name's John Graham. I'm a Coomba Mary man, a salt water man of the Gold Coast region. Our people are part of the wider Yugan Bear language group, whose lands stretch from Logan River in the north to the Tweed in the south, to the other side of the Great Dividing Ranges out past Bow Desert up to a place called Tevid Brook and bordered by the beautiful Pacific Ocean. Coomba Mary's people's lands stretch from the Goomera Goomera, Coomera River in the north, to the Tweed, to the foothills of the mountains. At all welcomes that I do, I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respects to our elders past, present and emerging. For our people fought the good fight in dark and desperate times in order for people of my generation to work with others Australians towards a reconciled nation uh, in order for us to leave a legacy for our young people. For they're the bearers of the flame, the keepers of knowledge and keep our culture strong into the future. I also pay my respects to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across this nation and I pay my respects to the spirit of this nation and her people, which includes all of you here at this uh, event. I'd like to uh, acknowledge my Apical ancestor, Waru, uh, who was born on the banks of the Narang Well, the Narang River, where I'm situated at the moment. Uh, it's a place of the shovel nose ray. Uh, she lived along here for many years and in her later life, lived with her daughter, Jenny and Andrew, up at a place called Gardner Island which was just off Brighton Parade, Southport. Uh, they were sustained by the abundance of seafood from the river and also the ocean, and generations of our people lived along that place. It's a special place. Our footprint remained strong in this place as our sovereignty was never ceded. We are the custodians of this land and always will be. Thanks for listening to me and welcome to this country. I'd like to uh, wish Stan and and carry all the best with the uh, conversation and may we all work towards a better future for all of us Australians. Anyabu, anyabu. Thank you. Until we meet again. Hello everyone. My name is Carolyn Evans and I'm the Vice-Chancellor of Griffith University, the co-host of this event along with Hotter, home of the arts on the Gold Coast. Hotter and Griffith University proudly acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which we are meeting. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and recognise their continuing connections to the lands, waters and extended communities throughout South East Queensland. Welcome to another chapter of our series of fascinating conversations, A Better Future for All. Due to reinstated COVID restrictions, unfortunately we're unable to have this discussion in our usual home at Hotter. So thank you to all of you for making time to join us for this live stream instead. I know it's not quite the same as being in a room together, but we are thankful that the event can still go ahead online. For this event, we are thrilled to welcome renowned political journalist and one-time Griffith professor, Stan Grant, as our guest of honour. A proud Wiradjuri and Kamilaroi man, Stan has spent the past 30 years working to establish himself as one of the country's most passionate and respected reporters and commentators. A prominent First Nations advocate for First Nations rights, Stan is both fearless and thoughtful in his approach to exploring issues of national significance. Best known for his fruitful and lengthy partnership with the ABC, Stan has worked with a number of local and international networks over his career, including NITV, Seven, SBS, Sky News, Al Jazeera English and CNN, where he worked as a foreign correspondent. 
It was during his time with CNN that Stan developed an interest in the then emerging geopolitical giant that is China. His insight into the superpower's rise to dominance has seen him earn great respect as an expert on the subject, ultimately landing him the role of co-host on ABC's China Tonight. In addition to his broadcast work, Stan is also chair of Indigenous Australian Belonging at Charles Sturt University and was from 2018 to 2020 Professor of Global Affairs here at Griffith. Yet somehow, among all of that, he's also found time to become an accomplished author, having published six books since 2002. His most recent, With the Falling of the Dusk, is a fascinating exploration of the factors that shaped international relations in the wake of World War II, ultimately creating the global order in which we live today. What was once considered the immutable way of the world is quickly shifting, as China continues to assert its dominance both in the Asia-Pacific region and as an international superpower. Drawing on that expertise that served him so well in his role as the ABC International Affairs Analyst, Stan examines this and all the other ways in which the established order is being challenged in the face of changing social, economic and environmental circumstances to tell a story that is as much about how these forces affect us on a personal level as they do on a global one. We're just thrilled to welcome Stan, or welcome Stan back as our guest, and we're equally pleased to have Kerry O'Brien once again steering this week's conversation. As is one of the country's most well-known and revered journalists, it's been such a joy to watch Kerry take command of these events over the past several months, using his inimitable interviewing skills to unfailingly bring out the best in our esteemed roster of guests. Bringing these two titans of Australian journalism together is a special event indeed. I'm sure you'll agree their chat promises to be a truly captivating discussion about the state of our world, what is, what was, and what may yet be to come. So without further ado, let me hand over to Stan and Kerry. Welcome to this ninth of the Griffith Hotter Conversation series. You've been a compelling Indigenous voice against racism for more than 20 years now, but particularly since your first memoir, The Tears of Strangers, in 2002. I was actually at your book launch that day, and I remember being absolutely knocked out by the story you had to tell and the thoughts that drove that story and the experience that drove that story. Because even though I'd known you as a journalistic colleague for more than a decade, I had no real inkling of how deeply you had lived that story. I remember you in the press gallery, and, and uh, this was a pretty kind of private part of your life then, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was, Kerry. Always integral, um, but always a great source of pride to me. It's something that I thought I was, I needed to be able to establish myself. I was always very conscious of the fact that as Indigenous people, we are judged differently, uh, and the doors are not as open to us as they are to others. Uh, we can be very easily too readily put back into our boxes. And first and foremost, I wanted, I wanted the respect of people like you. I wanted people like you, the people I looked up to, to say, this is someone who can cut it, who's a journalist, who can prove you know, that he can go out there and compete alongside others. I wanted, I needed that. I needed to know that I belonged and that I was as good as anybody else. Uh, and and I think I I didn't want the to carry the load that I knew that being an indigenous person in a public way can often uh, can often be a burden. Um, so so look, I said, look, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to be a journalist. I'm going to turn up. 
I'm going to get it there earlier, stay back later, work 10 times as hard, because I want this to last. Stan, there were a lot of people who carried those ambitions who were not Indigenous. Um, I did myself. I mean, I was very conscious of the need to earn the respect of peers and my seniors as I was coming through the ranks of journalism too. What was different about it for you? I, uh, and, and I know uh, you, you, one of your favourite authors is James Baldwin, the, the, the wonderful American writer, the late American writer. He was a touchstone for you, and, 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 but you said Baldwin sounded like home to you when you first started reading him as a, as a young boy. Quote, we were living in a world that could not see us and Baldwin made me visible. He did. He spoke to me in so many ways, um, not the least of which is that the book that I first read, Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain, um, which was a sense ostensibly a fictionalised version of his own childhood, of growing up in Harlem, uh, the son of a preacher, the issues that he had as a young black man then. Well, you know, I didn't grow up in Harlem, but I grew up in a black community. I grew up in a black church. My uncles were pastors in the church on the mission. Um, religion was a part of our life. Blackness, racism was a part of our lives. And Baldwin spoke very powerfully to me. But he also, Kerry, he also spoke to me about how we survive because we are invisible. And to become visible to white people, if I can use sort of broad term as that, um, is that we are, we are either conforming to what white people expect of us, we are objects of pity or derision, or we essentially assimilate. We become just like white people. It's incredible that the more successful that I've become as a journalist and the more material success I've, I've uh, attained in my life, how often people will say to me, oh, but you're different to the others, or you're not like the others. Well, the others are my, are my family. So it, it, it is different, Kerry, because we're entering a world that is not designed for us. Um, I share with you a really strong working class roots and you know, being a member of the working class makes you very, very aware of your own difference. But when you add race and indigeneity to that, it becomes a very uh, difficult process of navigating a world that is not designed for us. Baldwin once said, and I took this to heart, I have spent a lifetime watching white people and outsmarting them so that I may survive. And, and in no small measure, in my own, even back then, when I first met you and we first sort of entered the press gallery, I was watching and I was trying to outsmart people so that I, I may survive. Because, you know, when we fall, there is no safety net and there is often no way back. And there was no one else there, Kerry. There was no other Indigenous person in the press gallery. There was no other Indigenous person in the newsrooms. There was no one I could look to who had trodden that path before me. Um, I was very much alone, very much supported by the likes of you and great friends that I had, but very aware that the rules were different. No doubt about that. Yeah. So I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but, but I, I want to know how you managed uh, to break the mould for a young boy uh, living in Western New South Wales in poverty, travelling from town to town and school to school to pursue a future so different from what history decreed should have been your fate. How did you lot, do that? A lot of good fortune, um, good timing, luck, support, an incredible family. You know, mum and dad were born under the coalface of Australian racism. You know, dad, 
a black man, Wiradjuri man, Wiradjuri mother, Wiradjuri father, born on the hard scrabble missions of Western New South Wales, um, under the rule of the police, every single thing that we know has happened to Indigenous people has happened to my dad's family. They were brutalised by the, the initial invasions, forced off lands, pushed onto missions, families taken away during the stolen generations, incarceration, police brutality, all of the, all of the things that we know of the worst of that experience uh, he had experienced and his family had experienced. My mother, born into a, with a, to a Gamilaroi father in Coonabarabra and a white mother, which made it even more different again, because being someone who had a white mother, they couldn't live on the mission. They lived on the fringe, on the fringes of town. Her mother was stopped having her children in the hospital, turned away because she was having the children of a black father. She would see her father arrested for drinking alcohol and paraded down the streets with the other black men like they were you know, slaves or something. I mean, it was, it, was, um, it was a tough life for both of them. They had made a decision you know, when I came along and then my siblings later, that they weren't going to live under the, the hand of the state. Um, they would get off the missions. They would take their chances on the fringes. We looked for work wherever we could find it. We moved from town to town. Dad worked in sawmills. Mum cleaned cars and cleaned houses and did whatever she could to put food on the table, knocked on the doors of the Smith family at St Vincent de Paul to, to get a helping hand. Um, and, and I saw that and I realised at a young age the sacrifice. I, I, I was very aware of my place in the world and I was very aware that, that you know, we had to be 10 times as good. So I worked hard. I didn't have a classical education. I moved around a lot, but, but I worked hard. I read voraciously and incredibly, Kerry, um, you know, I came of age at a time when Aboriginal politics was burgeoning. We had the 67 referendum, the 72 tent embassy, the Aboriginal Affairs Department was, a was established. Figures like Charles Perkins were becoming prominent in, in society. By the time I graduated, we had the the Whitlam years and the changes that that brought with initial land rights legislation, things were changing and I caught the tailwinds of that. There were Aboriginal people like Marcia Langton um, who, who were great mentors and supporters of me, encouraging me to go to university. And, you know, I, I walked through one door and another and another and until I found myself into journalism, which really clicked with me. So, look, I had to be very lucky. I had to be born to extraordinary parents, I had to have a lot of support and I had to arrive at the right time of history. Very little of it, may I say, Kerry, is down to me or any innate gifts or talent, um, apart from... But, but it seemed to me that, that one well, very substantial element of all of this, apart from the strength and the character of those role models and mentors you had in parents and grandparents, was reading. Yeah. Reading, it seems to me, was the key to opening up a, a much wider world for you. Everything. You know, Mum said um, that I started reading before I went to school. She, and, and, and I remember, you know, even though I didn't go, I, I stopped and started about 14 different schools before I got into high school. By the time I'd finished high school, I'd been to about 18 different schools. So there was no continuity to my education, enormous gaps. But I read voraciously. I just had this love of words and love of stories. And Mum was a was a storyteller. She would write poems and short stories, and my grandfather was a storyteller. And you know, whenever Mum would go into a St Vincent de Paul or a Smith family or a second hand shop, 
you know, you'd see those bargain bins of books that were tossed aside. She'd grab a handful of them. She'd bring them home and it could be anything. You know, I was reading Greek mythology. I was reading Dickens and Hemingway and I was, you know, whatever mum found, I read. If I didn't get it or understand it, I read it. And, and so journalism was a, was a natural home for a voracious reader, someone who didn't have the benefits of a, of a classical sort of education, um, a poor kid, but a kid who, who knew about risks, who knew about upheaval, who was prepared to take risks and live with a lot of volatility in, in our lives. So I thought you know, journalism made a lot of sense. It, it really felt like a natural home. And I know, Gary, in your case, similarly to a large degree, you were a big reader, you know, education wasn't necessarily for you at high school, but you came with a thirst for knowledge and a quest for knowledge and a natural curiosity and a capacity to, to endure and to work hard. And, you know, similarly, I, I think those working class traits coupled with my own cultural background stood me in good stead. With one difference, you see, when I was being called a, a ranger or bluey or a carrot top or a redhead as, as a kid, I didn't see, I, I didn't think I was being insulted or discriminated against. I only discovered after, long after I'd grown up that the term ranger for many people is supposed to be a, a disparaging term. So that's one big difference between us. I never had any sense as a child of, of understanding what racism was in any way apart from reading uh, because you almost there was almost no visible indigenous presence in the Brisbane of my childhood. Now, when you arrived at, uh, at Parliament House as a young ABC uh, correspondent, political correspondent, did you have a sense that others saw you through a different prism to how they saw non-indigenous people around that parliament? I knew I was, I knew I was different. Uh, I knew that I wasn't like the others. Funnily enough, George Megalogenis, a um, great friend of ours, and uh, was was there at the same time. We're similar age, and we came in at the same time. But George and I sort of looking at each other and going, "Well, um, you know, he's a Greek, and I'm a black follower, and we were about the darkest they were in the press gallery." So we sort of right. we, we sort of clutched together and uh, you know and found a bit of a bit of a brotherly bond through that experience. But look, I I, I was aware of the difference, but I also found Kerry that journalism. And, and look, you know, it was a, it was a hard place, journalism, that it, you know, asked no quarter, gave no quarter, and, you know, they were irreverent and by today's standards, um, you know, <laughs> very politically incorrect and often racist and sexist environments. But one of the things that I did find about journalism and the press gallery in particular was that results mattered. The story mattered. If I got up at five o'clock and got to, the, got to the back door of Parliament House in the freezing cold and stood out there all morning and got up there and did my story in the afternoon and was leaving there at eight o'clock at night to be back there again at 5.36 a.m. the next day. And I did those, I did that work and people looked at my work and, you know, you get a little bit of a nod and say, no, that's, that's pretty well done. That was enough. That was enough to get in. You're in. You, you're good enough. You can cut mm. it. And I think that made up for a multitude of sins. I knew it was different. Yes, there was racism, um, the way people spoke, the offhand racism, but there was something in journalism about being able to cut it, get results, compete on, on, on those equal terms that appealed to me and probably got me through that sense of being different. Oh, well, in fact, as you're talking, I'm, I, I'm thinking of parallels and that's most certainly true of sport. 
for a long yeah. time, sport was almost the only path um, to that kind of white man success, if you like, for Indigenous people. Um, and, and yet that didn't, even in recent times, that hasn't shielded Indigenous Australians from the worst kind of racism. And you did that documentary on Adam Goods. I mean, um, and, and, that was and not that long ago. And you know what, Kerry, you know, even in race, even in journalism still, um, you know, that despite the, the measure of success I've been able to have and other Indigenous journalists coming along behind us, there is still so much ingrained in journalism attitudinally, um, uh, you know, it, it representationally that, that speaks to an inbuilt structural issues of racism, um, the way that Aboriginal people portray the stories that are done the, the, the lens that's constantly focused on on deficit uh, and crisis um, and and disadvantage uh, that doesn't reveal the full scope of Aboriginal life. There are still all of those things. And, and Kerry, you know, even in my daily life, um, you can still encounter uh, issues of racism. Um, I, I was filming just out the back of the ABC recently, just doing a, a stand-up out the back and the cameraman, the cameraman was actually a Chinese guy. And a, a, a young guy in his 20s with his girlfriend wandering by, and as he got close to me, he just said loudly for all to hear the N-word. Um, wow. You know, and, and, and that can happen. And, and, yes, you know, we can say, oh, well, he's a fool. You know, he doesn't represent what most Australians think. Of. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. But, but it hurts you. It, 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 it hits you where it hurts. And even mm. with... The measure of success I may have had, I'm I'm not immune to feeling the stings of that. I'm also aware, Kerry, that that even at the ABC, which is um, you know, very focused on questions of diversity, the fact of the matter is that I'm still an anomaly, um, and and that most presenters, most senior figures, are still white Australians who are running programs, reporting overseas, hosting you know insiders, late line. When it was there, Q and A, seven thirty, news breakfast. It's still white Australian, so I'm still aware of that. And I'll, and I'll tell you something, Kerry. I still feel as if I, I'm I'm still having to prove myself. That I still feel in some way that um, I'm being judged, and and one mistake, and I'll be out of the club. I I, I do still because feel because you are indigenous. I think so because that's where it comes from. You know, we were always made to feel as if we were the outsider. We were always made to feel as if we weren't good enough. And Adam Goods could win grand finals, two brown lows, be one of the great players of his generation and Australian of the year and still be kicked out of the club, still abused, still hounded. You know, um, I, I'm, I'm very aware of that. Um, and, and it does, you know, there are, there are ongoing feelings of inadequacy um, because I look around and the people I see who are my peers and contemporaries, still not people from my background. Um, and, and I am different to them, even though I'm comfortable. Yeah. Uh, you said back when, when in um, Tears of Strangers, uh, talking about this success, the path to success for you and your conscious drive to succeed, you said then each step I took was another step closer to becoming white until eventually I became a success. Success for a black person can be the white man's cruelest trick. Because then they say to you, you're not like the others, or, or, ah. you, or you become assimilated. 
um, that you become indistinguishable. And and in some way... So we choose to invite you into our club. In the club. And, and, and then you're in the club on their terms as well, not on your own. Um, and, and I've had to make... I've had to make compromises. Um, I've had to, you know, cut my suit to fit the cloth to fit in. Um, there are things, fights I could have had that I steered away from because I had to, you know, keep my powder dry. Um, and the the other thing, Kerry, is that inevitably uh, this raises a suspicion amongst your own. Um, who is he now? Who does he think yeah. he is? Does he think he's yeah. better than us? He's uptown now. Um, I don't get that to my face as much. Some people may feel that um, because I, I, I'm very strong and very attached to my culture and my family is such a strong cultural family, but, but I'm aware of it. And, and, and I, and it, you know, when, when success is seen as being white, to be not white and successful is a dilemma. Um, and Baldwin wrote about that. Tony Morrison's written about that. You know, remember yeah. the people who said, Tony Morrison, why don't you write about white people? What is, is is a successful African American? The white guys. The white guys. And you know, is, is being a Nobel laureate not good enough? Now you have to yeah. write about white people. You see, yeah. you're always in the club on someone else's terms. Yeah. And so, in that same context, you've said that the price of entry to mainstream Australia has been a disavowal of culture and colour and even family. Was that mm. true for you? Yeah. Definitely. You know, look, I, I, I had to choose to move away. I had to choose to live away. Um, relationships, even in families. But disavowing. Disavowing is something else, Dan. It's not just moving away. Well, the times, Kerry, when I was a kid, and it's particularly when we moved away from from, uh, from Griffith and from small country towns where there was a big Aboriginal presence and my family was very strong there. When we moved to Canberra and my sister and I are the only Aboriginal kids in the school and my dad's there to pick us up in the afternoon and I would hang back because I didn't want people to see me going after my dad. That's a terrible bloody thing. And and, and a very, and, yeah, very human thing, Stan. Yeah, and you know, and Kerry, and for some of those kids to come to me, I remember once I, I you know, dad picked me up and he the next day and someone in class said, hey, was that your father yesterday? And I said, yeah, and he's laughed. Yeah. Um, and, and you die inside and, and the little treacheries, the, the little, you know, the times that you turn away, the times that someone says something that you don't stand up for your own because you think I'm not up for the fight or I don't want the fight today or those little disavowals, they hurt and they are often the price of entry. Um, yeah. and, uh, and it's a terrible price to pay. Every other who's had yep. some success would tell you that story. Right. You quote another US author, Manning Marable, blackness in a racially stratified society is always, quote, the negation of whiteness. Uh, to be white is not a sign of culture or a statement of biology or genetics. It's essentially a power relationship, a statement of authority, a social construct which is perpetuated by systems of privilege, the consolidation of property and status. Yeah. Colour and race are not real. There are no races. There is a human race with... With a, a, with a range of genetic variations both in groups and outside of groups, often greater within groups than outside of groups. But we belong to a, 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 a you know, to Homo sapiens. We are a, a, a human race. The idea of racial division, particularly the idea of blackness, emerged with 
to what we see as the modern world, the post-Enlightenment world, when, when people could conquer other people's lands on the basis of saying that these people had no form of government or they were savages or we could steal them and force them to work for us for nothing and call them slaves on the basis of, of colour and some perceived racial hierarchy. That is an entirely constructed thing. And yet it is real in the impact that it has on our lives. And Manny Marable making that very obvious statement that to be black is the negation of whiteness. White is to be free from any of those assumptions or free of the idea even of identity. White people can choose to be or not to be whatever they wish. Um, you know, that, that old line that um, I think therefore I am, I think for black people it is, I think therefore I have to explain myself. Yeah. It must have struck you over the years with all the reading you've done, how often with white authors uh, they see no purpose or no reason to describe a white character as white. Yeah. But anyone who is not white is described as black or, or yeah. whatever that difference might be. But white never has to be identified in the eyes of many white writers. And, and, no and one, therefore I, reflecting, I guess, the rest of us. I'd come back to Toni Morrison again when she was asked those impertinent questions about why don't you write about white people? And first of all, she said, would you ever ask the similar question of Tolstoy? Why don't you write yes. about people? Um, why don't you write about people who are not Russian? But she actually said something, Kerry. She said, you know, I write about white people all the time. You just don't realise. She said, when you see the, the black person walking down the street and I describe them stepping to one side, as someone passes by, who do you think that person is that's passing by? She says, I write about white people all the time. So again, it comes back to Baldwin. I've spent a lifetime watching white people outsmarting them so that I might survive. You know, um, it, it, the, the rules are different and yet they are the rules. And, and what is maddening for me, Kerry, is that I've probably spent more time trying to think myself free of all of that. I don't want to live in that black-white binary. I don't want to buy into the language of race. Um, and yet it is so difficult to live in a racialized world without being dragged back in to that, that need to constantly explain yourself uh, and navigate a world that was not designed for you. Now, when you were growing up in those years, Stan, there was no one like you out in the public gaze. There was a Charlie Perkins beginning to make his way and that was about it. There were some standout black leaders, indigenous leaders, uh, but those, those who became the nucleus of indigenous leadership in Australia through the 70s and mostly 80s, 90s and so on, they were really just starting to emerge. I, I wonder if you feel it has made a difference to the overall story of the cost of the colonial takeover of indigenous history uh, in Australia that there are now Indigenous doctors and lawyers and teachers and journalists and writers and other great cultural contributors in growing numbers and even police and a sprinkling of parliamentarians. Is that making a difference? Is the story starting to turn around? The story is being told um, uh, and it is through our persistence and survival and endurance and talent that, that, is, that we are achieving that. Is it making the difference? Is it permeating the consciousness? Is it part of a national narrative? Or is it still seen as the other history, um, the, the Aboriginal story? Um, 
it, it, this is, you know, we're, we're still on, on that journey and you're right. You know, there are more, when I went to university, um, we could all, you know, the Aboriginal students there could all sit around a dinner table. Now, yeah. you know, thousands of Aboriginal students graduating and, um, and we have more parliamentarians than ever before. And, you know, there, there are enormous breakthroughs there. And yet the same things that I grew up with persist today. We're still dying 10 years younger. We're still incarcerated. In fact, the incarceration rates are worse. Um, we've still got the worst outcomes in health, housing, employment, education. Nothing is shifting at that level, even as individual lives may have changed. And as we've seen the emergence of an Aboriginal middle class, it hasn't moved the dial when it comes to those structural issues that that condemn the lives of so many of our people. Because history has a way of walking back on itself in this country, doesn't it? And perhaps that's true everywhere. That, uh, that, that, that a, a moment in time where you can establish a new milestone, if you like. Um, um, we are entirely capable as societies of turning back on ourselves and picking that milestone up on the way back. I mean, we, the Mabo judgment and native title and the, and the stolen generations inquiry followed by the culture wars and claims that the massacres didn't happen native title watered down after the WIC judgment, the National Sorry Day, followed, as you say, by the failure to close the gap. And now the rather feeble attempts to provide a credible response to the Uluru Statement. So when it, when it really boils down, um, uh, you, you wonder sometimes, you might, the, the saying usually is two steps forward and one step back. Sometimes I see one step forward and two or three steps back. And, and where is the political will? Without the political will, we won't see that change. And at each turn, I mean, even, you know, someone like Bob Hawke, who was, you know, said ostensibly was committed to these issues, promised a treaty and then retreated from that in the face of opposition. Um, we had the Mabo decision uh, and then we had the native title, which, you know, um, extinguished a lot of the potential of Mabo, even as it enshrined native title at law. Um, you know, it, 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 you, you, you need that political will to bring about the change. I, I've always felt too, Kerry, that there may be a, a disconnect between our, where Australians are at and where our politics is at. I think there's probably been a, a, a growing awareness culturally and socially and through new histories and stories and films and that people are embracing another idea of Australia that doesn't see Aboriginal people as something to be swept aside, but uh, indeed are at the heart of what this idea of Australia is. But that hasn't permeated our politics and, and at, the, at the cultural level, you talk about the cultural wars, we still see these things ferociously fought. Um, and, and whenever there is a backlash, you see politicians turn away from it rather than fight down hard and confront that they know they're going to lose votes, so they run a mile from it. Um, and, and, you know, without that political will, we're not going to see the big change, you know, that, that, that we need to see. And, and I, I think also, Kerry, you know, we, the country itself lives with a deep sense of its own illegitimacy. No one can live in Australia and not know deep down what happened. A, a people's land was stolen. Those people were slaughtered. Those people were locked out of society, segregated, excluded, continue to suffer today. It 
hurts the soul of the nation. And I do feel as if that is palpable in Australia. And that's the quest we're on, the quest to heal the soul of the nation and to also bring about the political change that is necessary for Aboriginal people to live through. Yeah, that, that, that sort of broad discussion about the colonial um, legacy, if you like, the harsh colonial legacy with regard to Indigenous uh, Australians. Of course, post-World War II, there's been this explosion of so many other cultures coming into Australia, and for them, um, Australia really begins when they arrive. And I wonder, I wonder to what extent uh, the, the, the important preoccupation at the level of national debate about the need for the story to be told in a formal way, the storytelling process, the treaty-making process, um, the, the serious revisiting of, uh, of curricula in Australia to ensure that Indigenous history is properly told. Uh, you wonder how real that is for people who say, well, I wasn't part of that colonial past. I've only just arrived. I just want to get on with my own life. Yeah, I, I think you've touched on something really interesting there, you know, to... To most people, Australia is an extraordinary nation. If you've left, you know, war-torn car parts of the Middle East or if you came on a boat from Vietnam at the end of the Vietnamese War or wherever you may have come from to find your way here, this is um, stuff in heaven. You, you're free of the conflicts of your, your homeland. You can make a new life for yourself. Um, you know, it's it's an extraordinary nation. And, and I think that's the paradox of Australia in, in a sense is that by, by global standards, what we have built here is remarkable. Um, remarkable. We are as, as cohesive, um, broadly tolerant, multicultural, democratic, safe, um, prosperous as we are, is exceedingly rare in the world. So then when you come to Australians and you say to them that there is a, there is a, a project of moral rehabilitation as well, there is a, a, a need to revisit um, the story of the country. They look at themselves and say, what do you mean? You know, I, I pay my taxes. I, I, I cut the lawn on a Sunday. I coach a local football team. I'm, I'm a good citizen. Australia's a good country. Um, what's wrong with us? It's very hard when people don't even see us to make people see the other Australia when Australia looks for, to, to so many like a Valhalla. Yeah, yeah. And you've since travelled the world as a trained observer and you've seen racism and the harsh legacy of colonialism played out again and again uh, in your latest book with the falling of the dusk you say you've looked in the eyes of an old chinese farmer working his arid land or a war ravaged refugee in a syrian refugee camp and seen the eyes of your parents you've seen a replication of what you're talking about here yeah, it's, it's, it's the weight of history, Kerry. Um, and even when we talk about history, what are we talking about? We're talking about a Western concept of history that is an arc, as they see, of progress. And in that arc of progress, so many others were swept aside. Colonisation, empire. You know, you look at China as an example of this. I mean, we, we see the return of Chinese power now or the rise of Chinese power as we like to see it. But for the Chinese, this is vanquishing history. This is overcoming the history of humiliation, the humiliation of the opium wars, of colonisation, of brutalisation. I saw this throughout the Middle East, throughout Africa, throughout Asia, and those people's stories mirrored my own. And, and that cleavage between 
the West and its ideas of progress. In, indeed, in the West, there is an idea that you live free of history. Remember Francis Fukuyama's declaration at the end of the Cold War, we've reached the end of history. Western democratic liberalism is the highest vantage point of humanity. Um, certainly, it, certainly it, the highest vantage point of arrogance in that case, but go on. And hubris, but, but, but for much of the world, of course, we live with the weight of that history. And, and that's what really enticed me as a journalist. I was telling the stories of these people, but trying to understand the story of myself as well. And, and in many ways, Kerry, I would love nothing more than to live without the weight of that history. I don't want to be poisoned by history. I don't want to carry the resentment of a hundred years of humiliation as the Chinese do. I don't want to carry the burden of, of all of that trauma. And yet it is inescapable in a world where that, as I say, that cleavage between a Western idea of progress and those who have paid the price for that progress is played out still every single day. How do you think you've changed? And and I guess this, unless you sit inspecting your, you know, navel gazing through your life, it's probably a hard one for anyone to answer really, but how do you... I thought I'd gone to Byron Bay to contemplate my navel, but that hasn't worked. Um, <laughs> Uh, so how do you think you have changed you know, since, it, since you began your, your pursuit of career as a journalist with all the things you have seen, the knocks you've taken, the successes you've had, how do you think you have changed? What impacts have these things had on you? You know, in some ways, Kerry, I don't think I have changed at all from the little boy who tried to scrub the black off his skin in a bath who saw the way his parents and grandparents were treated, who looked out on the world and realised that somehow we were different. I, those, that is still in me. And what I've been on is a quest to understand that world. It has deepened that understanding. It is grappling with all of the complexities of that. Um, what I started out at as, as a little boy, I, I still feel in many respects I am, and that is someone who is uneasy with the world, even uneasy with myself. There's a great line from Franz Kafka, how can I identify with the Jews? I can't identify with myself. And, and, and in some respects, even the easy identification with my own people is not as easy for me because I ask so many questions of myself. So I'm still that kid asking questions, reading voraciously, trying to understand. It has just deepened with time and the questions have become even more confounding. You um, you had 11 years, I think, as a CNN correspondent in Hong Kong, Beijing, the Middle East, and you've travelled travelled wider even than that. You've confronted some pretty tough stuff through those years. There's a sense that I have that you haven't found it easy necessarily settling back into Australia, uh, defining what you want to do with the rest of your life, dabbling with that probably more than dabbling with academia, but you've sort of moved in, you've gone out, you've kept a hold in it. Uh, at one point, even flirting with politics, juggling a number of roles at the ABC, but not really settling into any one of them. Did the years corresponding come at a price? They did. I, I think I've always been someone who um, likes to juggle a lot of things. I, I'm probably not comfortable with doing one thing. You know, um, I, I like academia because it's a, it's a headspace for me and I like to have a little refuge and it's a place in a different vantage point on the world that journalism, 
doesn't give you in that sort of following the bouncing ball of news each day. Um, but I do like doing a whole lot of different things. You're right that I've never really settled in Australia. In fact, I've never felt settled in Australia at all, ever. Not as a kid, not as an adult. Um, I love it deeply, passionately, and with a great intensity. I love the smell and the sights and the sounds of it. And yet I still don't feel at home even here. And at any moment, I feel I can pack up and leave uh, and, and, and move overseas again. Um, but in terms of what the... That must be unsettling. Oh, very, very unsettling. I, I, I don't... I'm an exile, Kerry. And I think I've probably come to terms with that, with the fact that I am an exile. Baldwin was an exile. James Joyce was an exile. You know, I, I, the writers that I admire are people of exile. Um, I am probably more comfortable in, in exile. Um, and, and I've probably increasingly come to terms with that. And, and in, in, in terms of the, the damage that, that seeing so much of the brutality of the world does, um, it probably only reinforced a lot of the hurt and the damage that was already there from when I was a kid. I remember after having spent a lot of years in and out of Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, covering terrorism in Southeast Asia, um, reporting in China, just, you know, it, you're like a frog in, in slowly eating water, you don't realise how, how hot it's getting. And I remember I, I hit the wall, I absolutely hit the wall. I had a complete uh, complete and utter breakdown. And I remember saying to my wife at the time, I just kept feeling like all the hurt in the world that I'd seen was compounding the hurt that I'd felt as a kid. And I remember saying to her one night, why do they do this to us? Why did they do this to us? And I'm still asking that question. Why did they do this to us? What did my family ever do to deserve this? And the hurt that I see in the world when you know people come in and, and the damage that's done in war, why do you do this to people? Um, and, I, and I carry that deeply, Kerry. I mean, apart from the... Well, it's the, the, great, it's the, great, it's the great puzzle of humanity, isn't it? I mean, I suppose if there's one thing that hasn't changed through history, it's human nature. Yeah, uh, with all and, its high points and all its awful lows. Isn't that true? It, it is. And, and I've seen incredible capacity for survival and endurance and the best of humanity, but I've seen so much of the worst of it. And I, and I am given to a dark view of the world because there's so much darkness. And, and, I, and I have a lot of nightmares about it. You know, um, A lot of the time I'm, I'm not even aware of them. But Tracy, my wife, will often say to me that I had a bad night. I was kicking and thrashing and running and, and, and shouting and, you know the nightmares have come and gone at various times in my life i've had to i've had to lay on a, on a couch in a dark room for, for weeks on end just trying to process all of those things um and and the thing i've realized is that it was never just the horrors of reporting the worst of the world um it was it was where they came from in me and being a kid that grew up with so much uncertainty and knowing where that came from and always feeling very deeply the hurt and the pain of those people around me. And, and good people, Gary, good people who did not deserve it. Yeah. You mentioned Afghanistan in passing, Stan. Uh, here we are now after the longest war, I think, that Australia has ever been involved in. Um, and the West has walked away from Afghanistan and the Taliban is on the way to taking it back to where it was. There so what go. was that all about? What was it about? Yeah. What, 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 what does the post 
World War World War Two war been about? I mean, we think about you know the Korean War, um, which which in fact may be the longest war because it still never ended. There's still not a peace treaty, just a, an uneasy an uneasy truce. Um, the Korean War. What was that about to leave divided Koreas that have never been able to come together, and now a North Korea that is a nuclear um, threat? What about Vietnam? What was that all about? Um, America's record of war for the most powerful military the world has ever seen post World War II is not a victorious one. You know, Korea withdraw from, from Vietnam, now withdraw from Afghanistan. The Taliban resurgent and and, and, and claiming victory, now ending combat operations again in Iraq, um, which last time they did this led to the rise of, of ISIS. Um, it, it, is, it, it is just, it's maddening the number of times we repeat this. And I think one of the lessons, Kerry, is too, that the idea that you can go in and you can remake countries, that there is this idea of nation building by force, we've seen time and time again, does not work. But who's left at the mercy of this? The ordinary people of Afghanistan. Yeah. I mean, how do you set about explaining today to somebody who wasn't uh, adult at the time how we got into Iraq mm. and how we got into Afghanistan and what we've learnt from those those failures? And And where do you start with something like that as well? I mean, we could start at 9-11 and say that those attacks precipitated the war of Afghanistan and then we led us to Iraq. But, of course, we know that even that was predated by events. There were things that led to that. There was the support of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan during the war with the Soviets that sowed the seeds for the rise of the Taliban and al-Qaeda, often aided and assisted with American money. Um, so where do you begin to explain a world that is so maddening and so complicated. Um, Afghanistan, which is seen as the sort of virtuous war, a response to the to the you know the brutal attack on the US in 9-11. But then the war of Iraq, to go in there on the pretense of weapons of mass destruction, which we knew at the time um, Saddam Hussein did not have, to then overthrow that regime and leave a vacuum that would um, see the rise of groups like Islamic State. Um, these these decisions that were made one after the other, misadventures that made the world worse. And, and you know, and, and, and it's easy to sort of say, or well, put the blame on George W. Bush there, but let's look at the Obama years. I mean, the Obama years were not a shining example of how to run foreign policy. Um, you had the, the, the threats of red lines in Syria that he didn't enforce. You had Obama dismissing ISIS as a a junior varsity terrorist organisation, well, that came back to bite him. We saw North Korea become a fully armed nuclear state on his watch. China you know, claim and, and militarise the disputed islands of the South China Sea. Russia annex Crimea. Um, you know, Obama's handling of the world also was not, was not great. So it is, it is, but we are at a moment now, Kerry, where I think so many of these dominoes that had started falling are reaching a tipping point. We are most definitely at a global tipping point now. And this is in terms of the kind of global authoritarianism, I guess you... you, you I mean, you write a lot with, in, in, in the falling of the dusk about the big geopolitical shifts today and the ascendancy of authoritarianism and the retreat of democracy. 
I, I wonder, and, and there's, there's a lot of conversation, endless conversation about why these things are happening and where they're going to go. I wonder how effectively you think journalism has assisted humanity's capacity to grasp and be engaged by what's going on and why it's happening. Um, at, at its best, I think it's done an extraordinary job, but the best is often few and far between. Um, and and I, I'm not just saying this because you're here, but the contribution you have made um, and, and others uh, to this country's understanding of itself and its place in the world, we are better for having had journalists like yourself. There are extraordinary journalists that I've worked with here and overseas that have assisted people to understand and see the world in all of its complexity. There are courageous journalists who will tilt against power at great cost to themselves, um, and they have made the world better. But I think one of the problems of our age now, and I'm a product of it, I both see you know, the virtues of it, but I also see the great vice of it, and that is that the 24-7 media, uh, media era has, has shortened our attention spans, put the world into a constant state of crisis. Each hour has to be more dire than the next. There is no time for introspection. Um, it speeds up the, the, the demand for politicians to act, often acting in haste, which leads again to poor outcomes. I don't think that that is serving us well right now. And I take something like COVID, for instance. You know, I'm looking at Sydney right now, which is in lockdown, and every day um, we get messages of unending crisis and it's out of control. Well, yes, it is serious, and yes, we have to deal with it. But but the reality is Sydney, on a worse day, has 200 cases, and Indonesia has 50,000 a day, and England still has 30,000 a day. And, we, and out of 120,000 people who are tested in Sydney, um, 0.2 of a percent of people, not even half of 1%, are returning positives. That, but, we, but we don't place things into their context so that we can have rational, considered, responsible um, uh, uh, approaches to this. We catastrophize everything. We go for the worst. The 24-7 media cycle inspires this constant state of, of crisis and every hour has to be worse than the next and every number has to be worse than the next. And I don't think that that is serving us well and I don't think it's serving us well in terms of the political outcomes and the decisions that are made as well. I can remember, see, I was in America as a correspondent in 83, 84, and we worked in with CNN. Uh, we had the Australian rights to CNN on the Seven Network when I worked there. So I visited CNN from time to time. I saw the early days of cable news and 24-hour news, and I could see the way it was developing. And I can remember going back there in about 2000 or late 90s, and, uh, and on a big staircase at CNN in Atlanta, they had what they called a chart of human history. And the most momentous event in that chart of human history, uh, and when I looked up closer and realised it was actually a ratings chart, the biggest event measured on that chart was O.J. Simpson's flight oh. from the police, covered by helicopters at, at the time. And, and in a sense, I know CNN has had some great journalists pass through it, but it is, in a way, indicative of the media world we occupy now, isn't it? And, a you big know, part of it, anyway. It is, and technology has sped up the way information is processed and disseminated. Um, there is it's such a crowded landscape. Um, it's brought the world closer together. Events move 
more quickly. Look what we demand from our politicians, Kerry. Remember when we were in, in Parliament House and if there was a, a press conference from you know, Hawke then or Keating, it, it was an event. You would go there and it would last a couple of hours and you'd grill them. And, you know, if you got them on that night, then, you know, that was something to watch. Now we expect them to pop up every couple of hours. Um, and we expect them to have answers. Well, to even everything. when we don't want them, even when we don't want them to, they do anyway. And, and, and that's they, when they don't go into hiding. Yeah, and they and they manipulate it. And 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 you know, look, it it, it it's it's an extraordinary thing, the twenty four seven news beast, because in so many ways it it helped to um, uh, to democratize information and news in the same way that social media and Twitter has as well, but it also comes with this poison, this toxicity that infects the body politic with this, this cancer of crisis and anxiety and endless chaos. And we know that the world is not always like that. And yet this is the way it is presented and it is stopping us making clear and rational decisions. I would hate to see right now in this environment something like a mid-air collision over the South China Sea between the Americans and the Chinese, and over a 24-hour cycle, watching that ramp up to the point where you've, you've got demands for war and retaliation and politicians reacting to that and making decisions in real time that could have absolutely catastrophic um, consequences. And yet that is the world that we live in now, and that's how high the stakes are. And that, I mean, when you actually stop and think about what that means, Making make you you you're making real time uh, yeah. decisions about things that are unfolding in front of your eyes, but they're also often unfolding in front of the eyes of the world. There was yes. one bizarre moment that you would probably remember wherever you were at the time, when Saddam has when um, Osama bin Laden was assassinated, and uh, and the world was treated to the pictures of uh, Barack Obama as president of the United States with his cabinet, his security people around him, watching live. We saw the, the images a little bit later, but watching live as the, yep. um, the troops, the assassins essentially were going in and they were being filmed as they went in uh, to shoot Osama bin Laden. When I watched it uh, on a television screen in Four Corners at the time, there was a strip running underneath it with a soccer score. <laughs> that's our world. That's, that's that is it. our world. I can tell you where I was actually then. Um, the day after, I was outside Bin Laden's house. Um, <laughs> I was actually right at the at the heart of of of, of that story. Um, and, what were and, you, you doing know, there? I was there for CNN reporting. We went outside the house. We had to speak to people. We were you know doing stories on the on Abbottabad, the town that he was in, and what the town was about. Talking to neighbours who may have known members of the family or what to do, all the usual things that we would do. And and also, Kerry, on that endless cycle of lives, you know, where you're just constantly up on air giving information without necessarily being able to go out and get new information. Um, you become you become trapped on, on that treadmill. Oh, great, you're in a great location. You're outside his house. Let's go live for the next 12 hours, you know. Yeah, and, and in the end... Uh, there's, a, there's a battle there for the journalist between fundamentally good journalism and just a wall, a great wall of words coming out, isn't there? Yeah. And the best ones... And often um, sometimes the words, the, the mouths are going, yeah. but you're not hearing the words. No. You've stopped and listening. The, the best ones, the ones who can marry both, but that comes at enormous cost. When I was working at CNN, 
there was an expectation that you would do the 12 hour live wheel. You know, you'd be up on the hour every hour or every half hour, constantly doing lives. But then I'd drag myself off and I'd go and shoot for the next 10 hours, um, trying to get a story together or find out information that I could actually add some value. Then I'd sleep for two hours and I'd come back up and do it all again. And, you know, there were, there were times when I would go three, four weeks on at best two hours sleep a, a night, but it was that will not do your job properly. Um, you know, technology has been amazing in the way that it has allowed us to broadcast from anywhere with nothing so much as a, a briefcase, um, but it has also trapped us in the tyranny of that constant news cycle and the demand for new information, and not just information, but the most dire information, Kerry. Crisis. Well, you wonder, you wonder where, where, how we break that cycle to the extent that that cycle is unhealthy, fundamentally unhealthy. Yeah. And if it's unhealthy to journalism, it's unhealthy to democracy. How do we break that cycle? We dance, the, 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 the dance between journalists and politicians in particular is a dance with the devil. We might see them as the devil, they might see us as the devil, but it's the kind of, it's this strange dance that goes on where on the one hand each feels that they have to try and keep the other honest, um, but we need each other. And I, so I, we, each, we each have created this, this circumstance which is fundamentally unhealthy. You know, you know something you once said to me, um, and, and I've, I've never forgotten this, in fact it became something that became a real um, motto for me. You said to me, you wouldn't even remember this, Kerry, but I'll tell you where we were. We were in, in the city in Garuna Place and we were having lunch and you, I was talking about career and journalism and what we do. You said, mate, no matter what you do, make sure it matters. And, and you know, I've probably let myself down sometimes with that, but well, by and well, large... I'm sure I've, I have, Stan, but do go on. <laughs> but by and large, I've tried to make it matter. Now, in terms of what we do with this era of journalism, which presents incredible opportunity. I mean, I've had a career that would have been unthinkable in any other era because of the capacity to, you know, of the advent of things like CNN and 24-hour news and the capacity to report the world from anywhere in real time. Extraordinary. But, but how do we get the most out of this? And personally, I think this is part of our, our responsibility as journalists to make it matter, is to is to make sure that we utilise everything at our disposal. So, you know, I have a career where I'm, I do television. I pop up, pop up on, on air on, on News 24. I'll do some long-form journalism for Four Corners. I write regularly for ABC Online. I've made some films. I, I, I write books. All of this is about taking the idea of our responsibility seriously, making full use of everything that is at our disposal, to help enrich people's understanding of the world, to raise issues, you know, to, to bring some depth and some understanding, to bring our experience to it, our perspectives to it. It's hard work. It means you don't clock off. You don't just say, I've done my eight-hour shift. But you come home and you think and you read and you write and you look at new ways of doing it. Now, that's what I personally do and that's what I think the best journalists are doing and, and this is an amazing opportunity this time to really, really make full use of everything at our disposal. Except at the same time, Stan, I, I have this terrible feeling that there is so much happening, particularly so much bad news in the world, and certainly we're reporting all the bad news, that there is simply too much for people to absorb. This is an age of anxiety. It's an age where people are, many people are turned inward 
many people are, have carried their own fears about their future, the future of their children, the future of work, all of these sorts of big questions. And now we, now we Australians are being told to worry about China and to worry about how America and China can reach an accommodation of shared power at some point in the next 10, 20 years without the next fearful world war. Are you an optimist or not on, on China and, and the West's capacity to deal with China as it emerges as a fully fledged world power? Probably much more of a realist, Kerry. And one of the things I think we should keep in mind, and again, to go to this point of the endless catastrophization that we see in our youth, where right now you would think we're one step away from war with China. I mean, the fact of the matter is that China's rise has been remarkable in that it has happened without conflict. Um, we have seen a country go from being a basket case that could not feed itself, the sick man of Asia, as it was known, to on the cusp of being the biggest economy in the world. It is an indispensable nation. Yes, it is a, a communist regime um, that, that does not share the democratic values of the West, and yet it is incorporated into a global order. It is a, a member of the UN Security Council, a member of the North Organisation, a member of the World Trade Organisation, signatories to international covenants like the Paris Climate Accords. It contributes to uh, global peacekeeping. I think the way that we've managed the emergence of a real superpower that does not share values, in fact, its values are often hostile uh, to, to what are seen as Western liberal values, has been a remarkable achievement. Now, can we continue to do that? Um, reality would tell us that we are reaching a point where we may be uh, at, at a point of no return. We are the architecture, the political architecture needed to navigate what is an uncomfortable big power rivalry um, is diminished. Um, if there were to be an accident, if there was to be a miscalculation that escalated things, how would we talk it down? That's what I worry about. Um, it's not the act of madness. It's not the invasion tomorrow of Taiwan. Um, it's the accident. It's the miscalculation that neither side can back down from. And when I see this sort of talk of a new Cold War and the fact of the matter that, you know, that our politicians can't speak to theirs and America's diplomats are not speaking to Chinese diplomats, and um, that's not good for the world. So, look, I don't know if we can pull this off. I think it's remarkable that we have thus far, but we are at a real hinge point where there is an authoritarian superpower in the world and it is changing the nature of our world and it is happening at a time when the ballast to that, the United States, which is meant to be the so-called leader of the free world, the beacon of democracy, its own democracy is diminished, its own power is diminished and globally, democracy is seen as being in retreat. You put those things together uh, and you have a, a dangerous hinge point. And I don't know that there are the great political minds, strategists, thinkers, leaders in the world that are equipped right now to deal with the worst potential outcomes here. Are you worried that uh, at the capacity for Australia's perspective on China to be warped by, by short-term self-interest uh, around, uh, around the way we might use China for our own domestic political gain. I mean, how, how, do, we, how, do, how do you, even as a, as a practised hand 
a practised China hand work out uh, what is accurate and what's not so accurate, what's being beaten up and what is real in what is fed uh, into Australia from our own um, intelligence agencies and how that is then used by government. Uh, how, do, how do we discern the reality from the, what is the truth in what we're being fed? It's part of the responsibility that I feel someone who has spent significant time there. You know, I lived there for the best part of a decade and I've been reporting on, thinking about, reading about, writing on, living in China um, pretty much since since the handover of Hong Kong in 1997. So I've got 25 years of, 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 of thinking about this and I see it as a responsibility to try to pick through that and to try to understand that, to look at China with a very clear eye and to understand that, Kerry, we are dealing with a country, particularly under Xi Jinping, um, which is increasingly authoritarian, um, where there is no free press rule of law as, as we know it, where democracy protesters are, are shut down, um, where, where Uyghur Muslims are locked up in detention centres, uh, China that can claim and militarise the islands of the South China Sea in contravention of rulings from the Maritime Court in The Hague, um, that will use trade as a weapon uh, and we've seen that against Australia. We know that and we have to understand. Yeah. But we also have to understand what the political impulses are in our own country. And we know that the old, to quote, you know, quote, yellow peril, the old touchstones of racism, the old fear um, can be very persuasive and very easily whipped up, um, particularly as we approach elections. Um, and, and we have to be very clear about China, but very clear about the political motivations of what we see here. Um, the, the reality is that we live in a world that is no longer just simply ruled by the United States. It is, it is a world where power is contested. It is a world where our biggest trading partner is an authoritarian regime that does not share our values. It is a world where a miscalculation could tip us into a catastrophic outcome. Rather than inflaming that, how do we, where are the smart voices? I, that's what I look for. The people who are smart enough to see through this, to navigate this, to bring new ways of understanding to this and to try to bring that to the Australian people to try to understand when they're being duped, when they're being sold a political line, um, both from China and from here. Stan, uh, we're also at the end of our time. That's another harsh reality <laughs> we have to face as journalists. But terrific conversation and thank you very much. It's always a pleasure, Kerry, and, and thank you, mate. Thank you for all of your support over the years. And um, you know, I, I cringed when I heard the introduction and saying the two titans of journalists. Uh, journalists. Oh, well, yeah. I, I'm in your shadow, mate, and you know oh, that. I think it's in, time to end this. <laughs> and, in your, and in your debt, to be honest. So, so thank you, Kerry. Stan, uh, well, there I say it. John Howard used to say it at the, at the end of every interview, but uh, a very real pleasure, Stan. You've been listening to A Better Future for All in conversation with Kerry O'Brien from Griffith University. Produced by Eddie Nullwaffer and edited by Michael Adams and Andrew Thompson. Visit betterfuture.griffith.edu.au to keep up to date with our upcoming events or catch up on our past events on demand.